That's a lot of stars on this platform today, shining brightly for the Lord. He is the all-sufficient one. Grateful to be back with you. Thank you for making time to be in the Lord's house. I want to take you to two texts, if you would, this morning. We're going to spend our time in Acts 4, so if you want to mark that, and I want to launch off in Mark chapter 3, there's a brief scripture I want to read there. Before I get to that, uh, my family and I are grateful for your prayers. Thank you for praying for us for many, many months we've been away. In fact, Angela and the girls are figuring out. It has been about a year and a half since they were here last time. I flew home in December, and we have spent a lot of time in Florida. I think you know the story. My mom's a widow. so I, In fact, <clears throat> I'll talk about the elephant in the room. I've got this bandage on my hand, and I thought, there's no way to hide this, so you're all going to be distracted by what happened to him. Well, I'll just tell you right up front so you don't have to think about it, the whole message. My mom's house was like a jungle. The azalea bushes were over my head. So I had my chainsaw out and was cutting all the brush, and we had this brush pile that was going to burn down the neighborhood, I was pretty sure. So I sprayed the bushes and had the kids spray the lawn with water, and uh, <clears throat> this is going to be like one of those pattering stories, okay? Any story that said, well, I have this old tank of gas, you know, any story that begins this way. So I thought, I'm going to get some gas that I don't want in this tank anymore. I'm going to fill it up with non-ethanol for my mom's mower, so I'll dump the old gas. So I just put a little, I thought, a splash on the brush fire, on the brush pile. And then I went and got my blowtorch and uh, decided, I'll just burn this pile. Well, I pray before I do all this stuff, Lord, I'm not here to burn down the neighborhood. I'm not here to destroy my neighbor's house, my mom's house. The neighbors just built a brand new house next door. I mean, they're not even moved into it yet. And so as I put the <clears throat> lighter to the p- pile, <laughs> and I just remember, it's like Paul on the road to Damascus, that I saw a great light but saw no man. And uh, I had the foresight to throw the torch out of my hand, at least. And I looked down, I thought, I should be on fire. And I don't know why it wasn't. I looked down, I was not burning. I'm thinking, do I drop and roll? Uh, I'm finding this searing pain in my right arm while well, I burn the hairs off my right arm. Amazingly, not much else. There are some blisters, you know, that showed up later. But the Lord was get gracious. I could be dead. I could be in skin grafting right now. But I'm alive. Um, wiser for the whole, for the whole thought. So anyway, that, that was my experience. Praise the Lord, I'm alive. And uh, it was minor compared to what it could have been. Let's see, we're in Mark chapter 3. I was grateful to be part of the ordination yesterday with Joseph and Joe Starr for his family to be here. Pretty amazing for, the, for parents to come and see this process. I'm thinking about 1993, I stood in this same spot. I was teaching in the school at the time and had the privilege to be ordained to the ministry. Well, let's see, it would have been 94 because it was the 93-94 school. Yeah, it's January of 94. And I told Joe... Back then, Pastor Suter had the great idea that we'd make kind of a Bible conference out of this whole thing. So not only did I go through hours of grilling with the deacons, but then we had an open forum, and you got to ask anything you wanted. It was like a two-and-a-half-hour service. I remember it. I think probably a few of you remember it, thinking, I am ready to eat, you know. So, Joe, be grateful. You don't have to do that, brother. We'll just say, boy," and we'll pray over you, and you go back to doing what you're doing. But we're grateful for you. Grateful that the Lord brought you here. All right, we're in Mark 3. Let me show you verse 14. Mark, uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 14. I've had the privilege to speak in Bible colleges and Christian schools, Christian universities and such. And anytime I get to speak to the ministerial students, I like to take them to this passage. And we look at Mark three fourteen, and I say, now I want to ask you, why is a person ordained to ministry? Mark three fourteen. 
And he ordained 12 that they should be with him, that he might send them forth to preach. So I always ask the preacher boys, okay, so why did Jesus ordain the 12? And the ready answer is to do what? To preach. I mean, that's what everybody gets, right? He ordained 12, but I want you to notice there are two focuses in this verse on why he ordained the 12. And what is the first one mentioned? That they should be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach. Before God works through a man, he first works in a man. And in our Sunday school hour, a pastor has us focusing on Joseph in this auditorium class. And we were talking about faithfulness. And one of the keys is faithfulness and personal devotions. Before God works through a man, he first works in a man. There's nothing more important in pastor's life than his personal daily quiet time. His time with God. His relationship with the Lord. Boy, his marriage to Pat is essentially important. His, his ministry as pastor of this church is greatly important. But the primary focus has got to be that time with God. You know, that's true for me. That's true for you. It doesn't matter if you're ordained to full-time preaching ministry or not. And Joe, it's going to be true for you. That time with God, that's got to be essential in your life. That paramount importance. He ordained the twelve that they might be with him and they might send him forth to preach. We're going to go to Acts chapter 4. This is the passage that you'll probably remember. The prosecuting attorneys, the Jewish authorities of the day, were bewildered by James and, uh, I'm sorry, Peter and uh, John had gone up to the temple. They healed the man who was paralyzed from birth, lame from birth, and he's walking and leaping and praising God, and this enormous crowd gathers, and they, they say, don't look at us. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he stands before you. And 5,000 men plus others believe on Christ at that, at that uh, opportunity, that time. And the authorities are beside themselves. You, you continue to preach this man that we put to death. And they said, yes, we do. And the scripture says this, they took knowledge of them. Now, first they noticed they were unlearned and ignorant men. But they took knowledge of them that they'd been with Jesus. I want to give you a message with a title, a question. What's notable about you? What's notable about you? Pastor asked me if I'd give a charge to Joe, and I will do that. But it's really a challenge for all of us, because for every person, when he or she is gone, when you are gone from this life, what lives on? I don't want it to be that, well, Rich Tozer was an evangelist for so many decades. You know, that, that's wonderful. That's my life work. But that's, that's not what I want to be my most notable trait. I want it to be that guy walked with Jesus Christ. And that ought to be true for all of us. Back in January, I had just been home here a couple weeks prior to this. I was asked to speak up at Brookside Baptist Church, Brookfield, Wisconsin. I'd never been there before. And so I flew up to Milwaukee, and it was about 20 degrees, and they just gotten eight inches of snow. I flew from Florida up to there. And uh, Mark Herbster had asked me if I would come up to Maranatha and speak, so I'd never been to Maranatha Baptist University before either. So I got to do that that week. And in fact, Grace Ann stars as a student there, so I saw her that week. So I'm tying context together here. While I was at that church, the church runs, I think, around 600, and they've got eight or nine men on their pastoral staff. Um, the pastor, the senior pastor, um, Brother Keltner, one of the men is a lawyer. He was one of the founding members of the church, and he's a pastor. Um, they've got a couple others. They've got one man. He's working on a Ph.D., and he helped write the program for teaching a Logos Bible software. And so he's kind of the instructor. They've got all these guys with earned doctorates or others. And then, um, oh, even the music guy 
the music pastor is Ron Hamilton's son. So, you know, they got this power crew, and the pastor asked me, on Tuesday we have staff meeting, and he said, it's usually like an hour and a half. He said, would you give us a challenge at our staff meeting? I said, okay, how long do you want it? He said, 25, 30 minutes, something like that would be great. So I'm praying about it that week. Now listen, I have an earned bachelor's degree in Bible. That's the extent of my formal education. And so I have a bachelor's in Bible, and I'm going to speak to this staff that has all kinds of training. And I thought, what am I going to speak to them about? And instantly I knew the passage I wanted to go to. It's here in Acts chapter 4. I'd like to ask you if you'd stand with me out of respect for God's word. Acts 4. And I'm going to read beginning in verse 1. And we'll culminate in verse 14 if you'll follow along there. Acts 4, beginning in verse 1. And as they spake unto the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold until the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit, many of them which heard the word believed. The number of the men was about 5,000. Came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. When they'd set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said to them, You rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man by what means he's made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him, doth this man stand before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. And they took knowledge of them that they'd been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. I love that expression. They took knowledge of them that they'd been with Jesus. Wouldn't that be be an epitaph to put on your tombstone? They took knowledge of him that he'd been with Jesus. What's notable about you. Lord, thank you for the privilege to gather as Eagle Heights Baptist Church today. And it's it's not just we as a church body. We've got people from other churches, other Christian family and friends that are here today. Thank you for the privilege for us to gather as born-again believers through the Lord Jesus Christ. And for anyone who's here and does not know the Savior, we know that you did not design this to be some exclusive club. You want all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. I pray that folks might be gathered into your forever family today. If anyone here does not know the Lord, please draw him or her to the Lord Jesus Christ, who will be lifted up today. And you said if he be lifted up as he was on the cross, he would draw all men unto him. Have your way. And as we, as we recognize today your hand on the life of Joe Starr, I pray that you would be honored in Joe and Emily's lives and their family. And I pray their ministry would be much about Jesus Christ, in whose name we now pray. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Appreciate you standing. I want to break this section of Scripture down into three areas. I want to start with this, an angry examination. It's in verses 1 to 7, an angry examination. Now, notice what happened in verse um, 1. We read, as they, and that's speaking of Peter and John, as they spake the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. I want you to see this, first of all, they were in prison for performing a miracle. 
It's in verses 1 to 4. They were in prison for performing a miracle. Now, interesting, we're told there in verse 3, they laid hands on them. Don't worry, Joe. This is not the kind of laying on hands that you're going to get today, okay? This is an angry laying on of hands. They apprehended them, and they pulled them apart out of the people. What had just happened? If you read chapter 3, I like to preach from chapter 3. It's where the impotent man was taken, and every day he would be laid at the beautiful gate by the temple, and he would ask alms, charitable gifts, because he couldn't walk. And that's when Peter and John come along, and he said, alms, and they stop. Peter said, look on us. And the scripture says in chapter 3 that he gave heed to him, expecting to receive something of him. Interesting, a complete stranger to the man, and he's expecting to receive something of him. Challenge to me as we think about our own father has said, Call unto me and I'll answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Do we go to him with expectancy? Do we come to God with the same? This guy never met Peter and John. And he said, Look on us. And then he said, Silver and gold have I none. Typical preacher. I don't have any money. But what I do have, I'm going to give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the hand and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And then we read all of a sudden he's walking and leaping and praising God. I don't have many titles like this, but I, I call that particular message the high step and hallelujah shout and hitherto handicapped Hebrew. That's my title for that chapter. I love to preach on that chapter. And so he's walking and leaping and praising God. Well, that elicits quite a response. All of a sudden, people are coming in droves. Like, we've all seen that guy beg for years, decades. What happened to him? And they're, they're coming around Peter and John, and Peter sees all the attention coming to him, and he says, whoa, just a minute, don't look at us. It's not like some power of ours raised this man from the dead. Listen, this fella, and he's pointing to the man now standing and revved up and ready to go. He said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, in his name this man stands before you whole. And, and look what happens there in verse 4. Many of them that heard the word believe, the number of the men was about 5,000. Now remember, that it was the custom of the Jews to just number based on heads of household. They just number the men so 5,000, when Jesus fed 5,000, that was just the guys. That didn't count the wives and the kids. Again, this is the number of the men. There may have been more, but there are 5,000 that have believed. Wow. Okay, so you talk about power. Now think, think of this. They're in prison for performing a miracle. Who imprisoned them? Well, the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish council. It consisted of 70 governing officials plus the high priest. That would be the 71st member. And the Sanhedrin were largely, in this case, made up of the Sadducees. You remember there were two competing bodies of Jewish uh, religious leaders at the time. The Pharisees, Paul was one of those, and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were known for their formalism, for their legalism. Uh, the Pharisees tried to live as rigidly by the law as they could in the hopes that they would gain God's favor. Uh, Paul was from that group. Uh, you know, if I had been in the, in, living in the day, I probably would have been more aligned with the Pharisees, to be very transparent, than the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the more liberal, and not just liberal in their practice, but liberal in their, in their uh, thinking. By the way, when I say I would have aligned with the Pharisees, that w that's an error, okay? I'm not saying that they were right, so please understand. I'm just saying in the frailty of my own personality, I would have been, that would have been my crowd, right? Just try to be as rigid and straight as we... The problem was, Pastor was mentioning this morning, and it dawned on me, every week he said, I, I pray for God to give us a hunger and thirst for righteousness. And it struck me, he and I were out here praying this morning, and, and he struck me when he prayed that. Yeah, you know, for anything to be righteous, real righteousness has to originate with God. All our righteousness are, are what? They're like the band-aids I ripped off my flesh this morning and got rid of before I put the... They're like filthy rags. 
That's what our righteousnesses are. You know, for me to be righteous, I have to get that righteousness from God. Now, the Sadducees, they were just, they, they didn't go with any oral, uh, oral traditions or anything uh, outside the scripture itself. They were known more by what they didn't believe than what they did believe. That, that struck me. I wrote in the margin here, no more by what they disbelieved than what they did believe. And I thought, that's pretty tragic. You know, how, wouldn't it be awful that your whole life is characterized more by what you're against than by what you're for? Now, I'm a prophet, okay? Spirit, I see it black and white. I'm thus set the Lord. But I got thinking, I don't, I don't want to be characterized more by what I'm against than by what I'm for. Let's be so much about Jesus Christ that everything else pales in comparison. Now, listen to this. The Sadducees, what they did not believe, their, their name means the righteous, okay? They were against or did not believe in the resurrection of the body, the immortality of the soul, or the existence of spirits and angels, believe in the resurrection of the body, they didn't believe in the immortality of the soul, and they didn't believe in angels or spirits. No wonder they're sad, you see. You've heard people say that. Why were they called the Sadducees? Think about this. If you didn't believe in life beyond the grave, if you didn't believe in the existence of angels and spirits, if you didn't believe in immortality, what's there to live for? Amazing. So they were the theological liberals, if you will. So they're, they're opposed to what's going on here. Now, these men were talking about an angry examination in prison for performing a miracle. But then notice this, they were interrogated for their source of power. Interrogated for their source of power. Pick up in verse 5. came to pass on the morrow, the day after they were arrested, the rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, as many as were kindred of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. Now, i got to tell you, they're, they're gathering because this has become a serious threat to them. They, they had crucified Jesus Christ. They would authorized the crucifixion. They got the Romans to do it, but they they were the ones who wanted it. Why is this problematic to them? (laughs) If you go back to chapter 3, notice this. When Peter preached, verse 12, chapter 3, Peter saw it. He answered to the people, you men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Why look ye so earnestly on us as though by our own power or by our holiness we had made this man to walk? The God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, had glorified his son Jesus so let there be no mistake, the God of our father, Abraham, Isaac, Israel, Jacob, that father has glorified his son, Jesus Christ, and then he makes this connection, whom you delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you, a.k.a. Barabbas, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, whereof we're witnesses Oh, you think about what their preaching is doing. The, the man you all authorized to be put to death is the Son of God, and it is he who not only rose from the dead, but who raised this man up. And what happens? We read here that 5,000 believe, 5,000 men. Okay, think about it. Pentecost had occurred in chapter 2. That was just a few weeks before. And you remember on the day of Pentecost how many believed and were baptized and added to the church? 3,000. So 3,000 plus 5 is 8,000. What was the population of Jerusalem at the time? I knew that morning speaking to this group of men, they'd all be fact finders. You know, this men at the Brookside Baptist. So I figured, oh, I better Google this and make sure I'm right. So I Googled population of Jerusalem. There are varying numbers. Uh, Tacitus was a Roman historian. He puts it at 600,000. That seemed high. Rome had about a million at the time. I thought, no, nah, I'm not sure about that. Dug a little deeper, found out Tacitus was known to inflate his numbers. Okay. So the lowball number was 20,000. Nah, that's kind of low. And so I, I kept digging, you know. And don't always take everything at face value. I like to fact check myself. I found out conservative estimates, Jerusalem had at the time about 80,000 people. 
Well, now think about that. If 80,000 people reside in Jerusalem, then if 8,000 got saved in a couple of weeks, what percentage of the population is that? 10% of the city has come to Christ. And remember, the Lord said he, he added to the church daily such as should be saved. I mean, this thing is snowballing. So the religious authorities, you can, you can imagine, are disconcerted by this whole thing. Another little bit of fact-checking I had to do, and I just say these things to you to encourage you to, to study, to show thyself approved unto God. Notice here it mentions Annas, the high priest, in verse 6. I, I get thinking, wait a minute, I thought Caiaphas was the high priest. And it mentions Annas as high priest. And you remember when Jesus was on trial, he was taken before both Annas and Caiaphas. Now, Annas had been high priest. By this time, he is not the official high priest. So I had to dig a little bit. Okay, what do I know about him? Annas was actually high priest from AD 6 to 18. AD 6 to 18. Well, Jesus was crucified around 30 or so. So Annas is not the high priest. Well, here's the deal. The Romans defrocked him. He was too powerful. He was too influential. And they made his son-in-law Caiaphas the high priest. So Caiaphas was actually the high priest from 18 to 36. Why is Annas mentioned as the high priest? Because everybody knew he's the real power. Caiaphas was more a figurehead because the Romans had meddled in Jewish affairs. And so, okay, what does that have to do with anything? Dig. There are no contradictions in the Bible to history. Sometimes you'll hear, well, the Bible's full of contradictions. It's not. Okay, all these things are answerable. If you find something that seems to be contradictory, there's an answer to it. But the point being that this is the powerhouse committee. These, these Jewish authorities, imagine if you were summoned before the Supreme Court in our country. In Judaism, this is the highest court of the land. You, you're going to testify for alleged wrongdoing before the Supreme Court of the United States. That would be like for these guys. So they bring them in. Look at verse um, 7 when they set them in the midst. So you get the idea. They're, they're, they've got these men surrounding. You figure maybe like a semicircle. You've seen the, the Inquisition that is Congress when they're interrogating people. The poor guy who's at the lone wooden table with his singular mic and he's surrounded. It's like being fed to the lions, right? And so here he is, uh, Peter and John rather, they're in the middle and in the midst. And what do they ask him? By what power or by what name have you done this? Who, who gave you the right or authority to do this? Okay, the, the word power is the word dunamis. It's dynamite. It's like gas that explodes when you light a brush fire. Uh, it's, it's explosive power. By what power have you done this? By what name? Name is like when you sign a check, you put your name on it. So it's, it's your personal identity, and it, it gives authorization to transfer funds from your account to somebody else. By what power, miraculous power, by what name, whose authority have you done this? Peter doesn't even miss a beat. You know, sometimes I've listened to um, renowned evangelical leaders get interrogated on secular programs, and it's just nauseating. You'll see them just crippled in the present. Well, you know, I figure if you blink 25 times, it probably is better. Well, I don't think Jesus really meant that. I mean, in light of our culture, oh, come on, Joel Osteen, tell the truth, okay? How many times have you seen somebody who's renowned religious leader and they just kind of cave under the pressure of well it's just peer pressure it's public pressure peter and john do not miss a beat look at this verse eight then peter filled with the holy ghost said to them you rulers of the people and elders of israel if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man by what means he's made whole be it known unto you all and to all the people of israel that by the name of jesus christ of nazareth and look he doesn't just say jesus name notice what he qualifies next whom you crucified whom god raised from the dead 
Even by him doth this man stand before you whole. Joe, never, never be ashamed of the Lord Jesus. Always be identifying, I am a follower of his. I serve him. It's in his name and his power that I've been called to do what I do. And then he says this, This is a stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. How many of you in your study Bible may have a, a reference, either center reference or maybe down at the bottom there? You'll see Psalm 118.22. Do any of you see that reference in your Bible? Psalm 118.22. That is the scripture from which Peter is quoting there. That's the scripture he's ref- referring. And he says, okay, the, the stone which was set at naught of you builders has become the head of the corner. What builders? The builders of Israel. The builders of Judaism. And he says, you guys are appointed to be the builders of this faith. And you, you know what you've done? You've set at naught. You've set aside the cornerstone. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. The cornerstone was the stone that was set from which all others would be laid in the foundation. So whichever way you oriented that cornerstone, all the walls would be lined up based on that one. Plus it was a big it was a massive stone so that it could bear the weight of all the other stones being laid up against it and then piled from that point on. And that's the term for the cornerstone. The, the stone which was set at naught of you builders, he is the chief cornerstone. He's the guy you crucified whom God raised from the dead. Whew. I mean, you could feel the tension in the room. We're not even there. And you can imagine it. That's why I, when I read this, I can't help but read it with pathos, with, with emotion in my voice, because you, you know Peter didn't say, well, the guy you crucified. The same Jesus you crucified, the one God raised from the dead, that's how this man stands before you whole. Whew. Okay, so there's the angry examination. But then I want you to see, number two, an affirmative declaration. Verses 8 through 12, an affirmative declaration. Oh, I've kind of jumped ahead, sorry. I've given you already the verses. Let me give you the observations. An affirmative declaration. Uh, first of all, identification of their source in verses 8 through 11. He just said, okay, how did this happen? Jesus Christ. They asked for name and they asked for authority, didn't they? Let, we want your credentials. We'll give you the credentials. The one you crucified in exchange for a murderer? Yeah. The one that God the Father raised from the dead, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our Father, He raised His boy from the dead, His Son, and it's in His name He stands before you. So notice they're declaring with power and declaring with pointedness, I observed. Identification of their source, declaring with power, declaring with pointedness. And boy, Joe, when you preach, preach with power, preach with pointedness. My, My determination is I never want to preach above people's heads. I always want to preach in such a way that that uh, the, the newest Christian among us can get it. You know, and, and I, I don't, I'm not saying I because I'm the template. I'm just saying as a, as a preacher of the gospel, my purpose is that everybody ought to be able to get this. And there are going to be some nuggets out there. There's morsels, which are, they're meat. Okay, I want, I want the Christians who've been saved for a long time to get some meat. But I, the gist of the message ought to be where anybody can get it. Preach with power, preach with pointedness. But then notice this. Not only there is identification of their source, but then there is B, affirmation of their Savior. Look at verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. Well, that's powerful. Identification of their source and affirmation of their Savior. Declaring with persuasion, I said here. Declaring with persuasion. You remember John 14, 6, Jesus had said, I am the way. The truth and the life, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Okay, so what is Peter saying? 
Neither is there salvation. Wait a minute, let's rewind the tape. Two months before this, Peter had denied the Lord with cursing and swearing. I I know not the man. Boy, what a change has come over Peter. Now filled with the Holy Ghost, he says, the one you crucified who God raised from the dead. Listen, there is no salvation in any other. There's none other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. Folks, listen. In our pluralistic culture, people do not want to hear that there's one way to heaven. But thank the Lord that there is one way to heaven. And it's not a way of self-affliction. It's not a way of mutilation of the body. It's not a way of, if I pay so much money, which is beyond my personal means, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus did not come to earth to start up a following. He didn't come to found the new religion. He came to save sinners. That's whether they were Jew or Gentile. That's whether they were trying to be as religious as they could be or they were as wicked as the woman taken in adultery. He's come to seek and to save that which is lost. There's no salvation in any other name but Jesus' name. And they declare that with persuasion. They declare it with pointedness. They declare it with power. Boy, Joe, that's our calling. To serve Jesus Christ and to make him known. So notice these the affirmation, an affirmative declaration, the angry examination, but there's one more. And that is an astute observation. An astute observation. When somebody's astute, they're observant, and they're given to detail. So a careful examination here, this observation is made by whom? By their detractors, by the ones who have them on trial. What do they notice about these men? Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they'd been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. All right, I noticed four observations they made. They saw, first of all, that they were bold men. They were bold men. They saw the boldness of Peter and John. That has to do with frankness, bluntness, unreservedness in speech. You know, it's interesting. Uh, my spiritual gift is prophet. I see it black and white. The prophet is more than happy to give you an opinion. In fact, if he wants your opinion, he'll give it to you. Okay, so um, that's the danger of the prophet. Okay, Jesus came full of grace and truth, didn't he? And I remember the Lord using that to break me. When I was in college, I've told you the story. My supervisor said, Rich, people don't care how much you know unless they know how much you care. Boy, it's true. The common people heard Jesus gladly. There, there are movements afoot. Some preachers gaining popularity because of their brusqueness, their um, harshness. Harshness is not fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. No, James says uh, the wisdom that is from above is first pure. All of us prophets love that one. But listen to what follows. The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. It's in James 3, verses 13 to 18. Even as Peter is saying this, it's not like Peter's rolling up his sleeves wanting to fight, but he's not going to back down from who Jesus is. So they're finding this amazing balance. They, they cannot account for the boldness with which these men speak. How did that come? In fact, even in our text, I want you to notice something. They were not naturally bold men. Go down to verse 29. Just let me pull a jewel out of a later place in this scripture. Now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. 
Sounds to me like you were pretty bold, Peter. Peter knew he was not naturally a bold man. You know, by nature, I'm not bold. I, I don't like to confront people. I hate confrontation. Peter said, Lord, please give us boldness. Look at verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken. They were, they were assembled together. They were filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with what? Boldness. What accounted for the boldness? Filled with the Spirit of God. We don't want boldness for boldness sake. We want boldness for God's sake that's driven by the Spirit of God, not by the, the flesh. You know, the, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. In fact, um, uh, what does James say? The wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. James 1, 19 and 20. Yeah, the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Man's wrath doesn't produce righteousness. Jesus Christ has given this man boldness beyond his natural person. That's Peter I'm speaking of. So notice they saw the boldness of them. But notice this, they were not only bold men, they observed also that they were unlearned men. Let her be, they were unlearned men. Unlearned. What does unlearned mean? Interesting, the word there, unlearned, is literally illiterate. Uh, It's from the word agramatos. I mentioned that to you. Our English word grammar comes from grammatos. When you have an A in front of a term in in, uh, Greek, it's it's, uh, negative. So agramatos means no grammar. Literally, it means illiterate. Now, they didn't mean that they couldn't read. They knew they could read. I mean, they were fishermen, but remember, we know they could read. How do we know that? Peter wrote first and second Peter. John wrote the book of John, first, second, and third John, and the book of the Revelation. Okay, they, they were not unlettered in the sense that they couldn't read. But in the sense here that, well, they haven't been to rabbinical school. They don't have a formal education. Now, I remember when I was debating after I graduated with a master's, I'm sorry, with a bachelor's degree, I was debating should I go on for a master's or not. And I'm not opposed to advanced education, please don't misunderstand. But a lot of my friends were going on for master's and I was thinking, oh. I was asked to travel as a, as a preacher for Pensacola Christian to missionaries, uh, first to American Christian schools and then to missionary schools around the world. So for three and a half years I went both in America and then overseas. And I'll tell you what, I got as incredible an education from traveling to it was 36 countries and territories during that time. I've been to 48 countries now. It's amazing what travel will do. You know, just, and again, I'm not supplementing travel. Grace Ann's hearing me, who's trying to talk her mom into Switzerland next week, and saying, there it is, Mom. Here's a quote for you, Grace Ann. The, uh, I love the quote from Augustine, the world is a book, and those who do not travel read only one page. Uh, that's a good one. I like to travel, okay? But I want to tell you, in, in my case, the Lord chose the route of traveling and experience. I'm not opposed to formal education, but what these men were, were persuaded, if you don't have book training, well then, you must not be qualified. Listen to this. Dr. Fred Barlow was a contemporary of D.L. Moody. And Barlow was a highly educated man. Moody was not well educated. And this was Dr. Fred Barlow's observation about D.L. Moody. Dwight Lyman Moody would turn the world upside down for Christ. Dr. Barlow would later describe this implausible, this unlikely candidate for evangelism, with these words. If anyone ever appeared to be less qualified for the office of an evangelist, it was D.L. Moody. He was unschooled. He quit after six years. That's because his dad died and he had to go off to work, and Barlow knew that. But he quit after six years. He was unconventional. He refused ordination and rejected being called by any title other than Mr. Moody. He was unseemly in appearance. He was short, heavy-looking, nearly 300 pounds, 
a commonplace man without grace of look or gesture. He was unpolished and ungrammatical. In his preaching, words rushed from his bearded face like a torrent, often 230 words a minute. Short staccato sentences, imperfect pronunciation. Charles Spurgeon said of him, he's the only man I ever knew who said Mesopotamia in one syllable. (laughs) Many ain'ts and have gots. Yet Moody was a success in evangelism. Aye, he was a superlative, even supernatural success. Now again, this is not to discourage Joe or any of you from pursuing education. It's not the point. The point is, D.L. Moody did all he could to educate himself. He started the two schools in Northfield for underprivileged kids. He then founded what became known as the Moody Bible Institute. He was a leader in Christian education. You should see his letters from his later adult life compared to his letters in his early life. He really advanced himself. But Barlow knew this. What made D.L. Moody the man he was was a, was a tremendous walk with God and the enabling power of his spirit. Took knowledge of them that they'd been with Jesus. They were unlearned men. Then they use the term here in our text, ignorant men. Okay, so the unlearned is agramatos. I'm going to give you the other Greek word because you'll know it. The word for ignorant is idiotes. Guess what English word comes from that? Idiot. Yeah. They were ignorant ignoramuses. Illiterate ignoramuses. That's what they're saying. Bunch of country bumpkins. Well, they were bold men. They were unlearned men. But then I want you to notice this. They were associated men. They were associated men. They took knowledge of them. They'd been with Jesus. It's amazing. You, you, can't, you can't think of a person without association. You know, you associate people some way, somehow. That's how I remember names, okay? And, and particularly couples. You know, I, I pray all the time for Tony, for Pam, you know, I can't think of Pam without thinking of Paul. I can't think of Tony without thinking of Eileen. And forgive me if I'm missing others right now in my illustration. You know, you think of Rich, you think of Angela. Anybody who knows me knows Angela. Anybody who knows me thinks if Angela goes before Rich, Rich's ministry is over. I, you know, I'm pretty well persuaded of that. I am so much what I am because of Angela. I'm, I'm associated with her. Listen, when people think of you, do they think of Jesus Christ? They said, we cannot, these guys have no formal training. They're a bunch of fishermen who followed this rabble-rouser that we put to death. Try as we might. The only thing we can put together here is these guys were with Jesus. Every day for three years, they were with Jesus. Think about just three years with Jesus Christ changed their lives. Many of you have walked with him for decades. How has he changed your life? They're associated men. But I want you to see one last observation, and that is they were validated men. They were validated men. Look at verse 14. Beholding the man which was standing with them, they could say nothing against it. You know, these guys weren't just blowing smoke. The man they had raised from the dead, the high step and hallelujah shout and hitherto handicapped Hebrew, is standing right next to them, and they couldn't blow it off because they saw the credentials. Now, let me, let me wind this down. So what's the point of all this? How were they able to make such an impact on their world? You know, I note two things. First of all, what it was not through. You cannot attribute it to these things. It was not through education. Okay, again, let me say for the zillionth time, I'm not opposed to education. I know John is working very hard on a PhD. My hat is off to John. I have great respect for what he's doing. This is not to minimize those of you who've earned degrees. 
But the impact made is not simply through education. Well, now that I'm a doctor, I'm qualified. No. It's not education that makes us what we are. By the way, it was not through assimilation either. I see, I see errors in churches on two fronts today. Sometimes we have the idea, well, if we get a staff that's educated enough, we'll be able to make an impact. Not necessarily. It's not simply the education that makes you impactful, okay? But not only is it not through education, it's not through assimilation. Boy, this is a more prevalent problem. We see churches trying to pander to worldliness, try to be as much like the world as possible in order to draw the world. Where do we get that from? Nature itself teaches you that's opposites attract. Look at magnets. Well, look at couples. You know, there, there are things about me that drive Angela crazy. You know why? Because we're opposites. That's what attracted us to each other. If we were the same, we wouldn't need each other, Okay. But there are other things that Angela found adorable in me, I think. Okay, so opposites attract, and that's what draws us together. We are not going to attract this world. We're being like this world. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. So they did not make an impact through education or assimilation. So how did they make an impact? Well, it was definitely through association and saturation. Association with Jesus Christ. Um, Acts chapter 6 verse 4 the apostle said we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word why are those disciplines stressed prayer is when you're talking to God the word is when God's talking to you association remember Mary and Martha and Martha's busy 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 and Mary's sitting there Jesus' feet hearing his word and Martha says don't you care tell her to help me Martha Martha thou art careful and troubled about many things one thing is needful Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her Now, Martha wasn't doing a bad thing. She was just so busy doing the serving thing, she didn't have time to do the main thing. What was the main thing? Mary picked it, sitting at Jesus' feet, hearing his word. That's in Luke 10, 38 to 42, association. And then saturation. Uh, Joshua 1, 8, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. Thou shalt meditate there day and night. Joe, the most consuming passion of your life has got to be God's word, where you just assimilate every day what you can from Scripture, glean from it, live it out, let it change you, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I'll finish with this, because I've been talking to Joe, but I'll tell you, Emily, the wife is every bit as much involved in ministry as the man. And as we have, as we have seen time and time again, um, when, when God calls a man, he so often puts with him the right kind of wife. And uh, I am so grateful for Angela. We've been married 26 years. We've now, we've just come to the end of 26 years at Eagle Heights and just finished up 25 years in evangelism. It, it goes in a flash. I'm telling you, looking back on my ordination, which was all those years ago, I remember it like it just happened. And it, you'll be looking back in 25 years thinking, wow, where did the time go? Listen to this. Ian McLaren was a great preacher of the word. He was a Scottish preacher. And one day he visited a woman she was an old Scottish woman who he'd heard was discouraged. He went to visit her, and she was in her kitchen, and he found her weeping. She wiped her eyes with the corner of her apron when the minister asked her, What's the matter? She confessed, oh, I've done so little. I'm so miserable and unhappy. He asked, Well, why is that? Oh, because I've done so little for Jesus. When I was just a wee girl, the Lord spoke to my heart about, going, uh, about uh, serving him, and I did want so much to live for him. Well, haven't you? asked the minister. Well, yes, I've lived for him, but I've done so little. I I want to be of some use in his service. What have you done? Well, nothing. I've I've washed dishes, cooked three meals a day, taken care of the children, mopped the floors, mended the clothes. That's all I've done all my life. I wanted to do something for Jesus. The preacher, sitting back in his armchair, looked at the woman and smiled. 
Where are your boys, he asked. She had four sons. She named each of them after Bible personalities. Oh, my boys? Well, you know, I, well, Mark, you know where Mark is. You ordained him yourself before he went to China. Why are you asking? He's there preaching for the Lord. Where's Luke? Questioned the minister. Oh, Luke? Well, he went out from your own church. Didn't you send him out? I had a letter from him the other day. Then she became happy and excited as she continued. A revival's broken out in the mission station. He said they're having a wonderful time in the service of the Lord. Where's Matthew? Well, he's with his brother in China. Isn't that a fine thing? The two boys working together. I'm so happy about that. You know, John came to me the other night. He's my baby. He's only 19, but he's such a good boy. He said, Mother, I've been praying. And tonight in my room, the Lord spoke to my heart about going to help my brother in Africa. But don't you cry, Mother. The Lord told me I was to stay here and look after you until you go home to glory. The minister looked at her. He said, you say your, wife, your life has been wasted in mopping floors, darning socks, washing dishes, and doing all the trivial tasks. I'd like to have your mansion when we're called home. It will be very near the throne. That's a good observation. When you guys dive into youth ministry, and man, you know, youth ministry isn't just about giving devotionals and preaching to the kids. All of a sudden, there are plastic cups to clean up, and kids whose parents never remember to come pick them up to drive home, and I mean, there are phone calls in the middle of the night. Sometimes you think, man, all I do is drive the bus and clean up rooms and put out fires. I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. That's in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, the simplicity that's in Christ. Remember, any work done for the Lord, any work done to his people as an act of service, is that which elicits a well done. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. The Lord doesn't call out big shots. He calls out servants. In church, we have the privilege to ordain a fine servant of the Lord. I'm grateful for that blessing. Joe and Emily, we pray for you. Pray for you daily. Well, I'll continue to do that. And church, we want to recommend to you the ministry of Joe Starr. The Lord's going to use him. And as, we, as I challenge him this morning, I'd like you to ask yourself the question, what's notable about me. Let's bow our heads together.